Hey, you're listening to Yo, This Can't Be Life, the podcast that aims to educate and inform Black women on how to take better care of their physical, mental, and financial health. I'm your host, Bree Montgomery, and I'm inviting you to join me as I interview resident experts to find out the cheat codes to living your best life. The information provided is intended to be general advice and should not be considered medical advice. For that, please consult your medical professional. Dr. Nina Anderson is an international speaker, classically trained violinist, health educator, and owner of Tova Community Health, which was named SBA Woman-Owned Business of the Year. Dr. Anderson is a nurse practitioner with a doctorate in nursing. Her platform primarily serves patients who suffer from sickle cell anemia, which primarily affects the African-American community. Understanding the health disparities in the African-American community, Dr. Anderson wanted to address the most dismissed disease, sickle cell anemia. Understanding the intensity of pain and the overprescribing of pain medicine given to the sickle cell community, Dr. Anderson makes it her mission to also educate and treat her patients on holistic medicine and music therapy to help with pain management and reduce the overuse of opioid prescriptions. Dr. Anderson stays close and connected to her patients, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic, through telemedicine video calls, Facebook Tova Tuesday live feed videos, and direct Q&A messages. Dr. Anderson also teaches at Delaware State University and has recently, prior to COVID-19, traveled to South Korea educating their country on the health disparities in the African-American community and sickle cell anemia in the United States. And with that, let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today in the guest chair, we have Dr. Nina Anderson. Tell us who you are and a little bit more about yourself. Well, thank you for having me today. My name is, most people call me Dr. Dina, but I'm an advanced practice nurse, a doctorally trained nurse, and I have a primary specialty care in the Philadelphia area in Delaware, in which I provide very holistic, comprehensive, compassionate care to individuals living with sickle cell anemia. And I have been working in uh, this uh, area or subspecialty for 20 years, very passionate about really making sure that in our community that we have set the bar high for what high quality care is like and making sure that there is a model of care that reflects that. Oh, that's great. So for those of us who are unfamiliar, what exactly is sickle cell? So sickle cell is an inherited genetic blood disorder in which the blood cells are normally nice and round and soft and move through the vessels very easily. But those who have sickle cell anemia make blood cells that are hard and sticky. And unfortunately, when they uh, become stressed, they can break down, they get stuck in the vessels. And when you're not getting enough oxygen and nutrients to circulate all the parts of the body that need circulation in order to uh, survive, it can cause excruciating pain, especially in the joints, but also in the organs that need a constant supply of oxygenated blood. 
And then over time, they can develop complications from that, such as with their eyes, they can get retinopathy, their kidneys, um, they can get pulmonary hypertension from high, brush, high blood pressure um, that backs up into their lungs. And so it's a very complex chronic condition that really needs to have specific providers that are very knowledgeable how to take care of them sounds really complicated. What types of things would you notice first that would kind of give you an indication that maybe sickle cell could be an issue you're going through? So in the United States, since the early 1990s, but I want to go back to the 1960s, when the civil rights movement, the Black Panthers um, really were the group that got and put sickle cell on the map and made sure there was resources for comprehensive care centers across the country and started a national or helped to start the national newborn screening program to test and screen individuals um, for sickle cell. And so in the 1990s, most babies are that are born are found out probably in the first week of life, whether they have a diagnosis of sickle cell, and then that has to be followed up by confirmatory testing. And then from there, when they um, go into a comprehensive center and uh, become educated on what it is, get the confirmatory testing, you know, sometimes symptoms may occur after six months when they're making their own blood cells, not fetal hemoglobin, but sometimes in each individual who has sickle cell, they have special and unique um, experiences and complications from sickle cell. Oh, wow. I had no idea of that history. Yeah. <laughs> so now because of that, it's pretty standard for them to do the testing immediately. Yes. Yes. And the United, if they're born in the United right. States, then they will they will be found out at birth. But then, you know, because we are, you know, we have a lot of um, people that come from other countries, you know, there's times where they, you know, get diagnosed later in, that, later in life or they were never told they had sickle cells. So you do have some, you know, people that find out later that, oh my goodness, you know, this is, I have sickle cell and they didn't know it all of their lives. Wow. So is there anything that happens by knowing early in life as far as the preparation? I know that you talked about maybe the parents knowing kind of what to do, but is there any like treatments or medicines that you can get earlier that'll help your prognosis overall? Yes, there's many more options available in disease-modifying therapies, and now there's promise for a universal cure for sickle cell. But um, making sure that uh, the new baby is connected to a comprehensive center is very important because the hematologist or the sickle cell provider will, you know, watch the baby, check their blood. And as they're, you know, growing up and, you know, they will make sure that they're offered treatment options like hydroxyurea or some of the new medications like Voxelator and Ectacveo and Dari and all of these new medications help to stop the blood cells from sickling or breaking down. But all babies are started on penicillin um, very early in life, usually around two months of age to prevent infection and to help protect their immune system as well. Okay. So I know you talked a little bit about some of the symptoms, but 
for not just babies, but in general, what are some of the common symptoms that people with sickle cell have? So the most common symptom they have is the pain. And again, that pain comes from not getting enough oxygenated blood circulating through the tissues and the vasculature. And even as a child, you know, some of the first signs that they could be experiencing crisis is called dactylitis is when their hands and feet swell. Um, that's very a sign early on. But then there's other things, you know, other things that can happen. Say you get sick, you develop a fever, um, you have to check the blood to see what's going on because if that immune system is weakened, then that bacterial infection can cause havoc on the body. Um, but most people with sickle cell, and especially adults um, that go to the hospital, it's because they're in crisis, and that crisis can happen. Um, uh, unknown times. Um, you know, there's many different triggers. Just the stress of life can cause a crisis to being sick, having a fever, having a virus, have a bacterial infection to even the changes in weather. Now we're going into the fall season. Um, we see a lot of uptick of a, of emissions for sickle cell pain crisis when that barometric temperature changes. Um, so there's many different triggers and sometimes we just don't know. Dehydration is another one as well that can cause this a uh, flare up to occur. Oh wow! Okay, so when these type of things happen, and and as you're learning, you know your specific triggers. Some of those things, like you mentioned, dehydration, you can kind of work on easily. Mm -hmm. Are there other holistic ways to address some of those issues? Absolutely. One of the things that I always tell all of my clients is to make sure, like, especially with into this COVID pandemic is that their immune system is strong. And so one of the things that I do for myself is probably not as much as I should, but at least once or twice a week, I have a cup of green tea. And green tea is a natural antioxidant that helps to boost the immune system. But then, you know, each patient, I, I, you know, provide them to at least have, you know, take vitamin C, zinc, and sometimes um, elderberry is really good. But to have that discussion with your healthcare provider to make sure that it's safe to use with the medications that they're on. But also, you know, the simple things that we don't think about is about getting high quality sleep. <laughs> to make sure body is to be able to heal um, and to get out and exercise, to walk, to get sunlight, to boost your vitamin D levels. Um, and those are the things that we don't think about, but they really uh, go a long way to help prevent complications of sickle cell and to keep the body as healthy as possible during this time. Okay. So you mentioned stress as well, and I know like, especially times like this, there's a lot of stress going on. So would it be advisable to like meditate or do yoga? Absolutely. Or... Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, also mindfulness meditation is another technique and a self-care management tool that I teach my patients because learning how to rechannel negative energy is very important into keeping the body centered and also to reduce stress because stress, as you said, is another trigger for a sickle cell crisis. And so some of the things we don't even think about is just even guided imagery. For example, I had a patient of mine that was in crisis and um, he was like, Dr. Henderson, I think I'm gonna have to go to the hospital. And I said, okay, I want you to take, go back 
to this special place that makes you kind of calm and relaxed. And it's and for him, it's being on a beach in Jamaica and and just visualizing the sun beating down on him and the in the ocean waves just circulating. And you wouldn't believe that probably in about five to 10 minutes of just being able to put his body in a relaxed state, he was able to calm down and he and was able to get his pain under control. So I, I know that these, these techniques do work and I really try to make sure that my patients work and, and do these exercises on a regular basis. That's so wonderful. I've been seeing a lot of articles lately about the psychologic aspect of pain management. Mm -hmm. That is so awesome that you're actually seeing it in practice working. Yes. That can help because I didn't realize until recently that although it's definitely very physical, there is a unique mental aspect as well. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked a little bit, but can we dive into more about the types of treatments available for a sickle cell? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, unfortunately, because this is a chronic condition that uh, I believe affects more people of African-American descent here in the United States, we really didn't have a lot of resources and a lot of treatment options to provide to our patients until much recently. So the first medication that was FDA approved for sickle cell was in the 1990s was hydroxyurea. And that was an old chemotherapy drug that was found to increase fetal hemoglobin levels. And fetal hemoglobin is um, doesn't sickle as much as the other type of hemoglobin. And the hemoglobin is a protein in the red cell that carries the oxygen. So for maybe the last 20 years, we were really excited because now we were not just treating symptoms of crisis by giving IV fluids and giving blood if their blood count dropped and giving opioids for pain management. Now we have have a new medication that we use. But recently in 2019, the FDA approved another drug called Indari, which helps to reduce the oxidative stress in the red cell. And then followed by that came a medication called uh, Voxelator, which is also new, um, which helps the red cells bind to oxygen and carry that so that the blood cells don't break down and sickle. And also another drug called Adacfeo, which works, it's called a P-selectin inhibitor, which also stops the blood cells from becoming sticky and reduces hemolysis, which is the breakdown of the red blood cells. So now we have four disease-modifying therapies that we can offer patients with sickle cell. But, um, you know, 20 years ago, we were excited just to have one. (laughs) Are there... What are the considerations for those drugs? Like, do they have side effects that people should worry about? Or do some just work better on some than others? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, you know, for even with hydroxyurea, I mean, we were very excited to have that. And we do know that it has uh, been demonstrated over many years to reduce sickle pain by almost half and acute chest by half. Um, because it's a chemotherapy, 
therapy drug, you know, some people were hesitant to, to try it. And um, also that, you know, there's theoretical risk um, that it could affect the fetus of an unborn baby. So then those women and young ladies who were of childbearing age as well, or even younger um, kids were, parents were very concerned about that. But all of the medications have, you know, side effects that we have to watch for. And even the newer ones that have just come out and I've been using them on the patients, you know, some of them can be as simple as just having, you know, some stomach, you know, irritation to others. The newer drugs like Adacfeo, we've been seeing um, some that say that they get very tired after it, but then like a couple of days later, they get this burst of energy, um, some still having some nausea from it. So, you know, each individual patient is different. And so we, we definitely have to disclose that, but just like with any medication that you take, um, you know, there's a risk for side effects. You discuss them and say that, look, everybody's different and everybody experiences things different. So for one person, <laughs> it may be this and another person, it may be something else if they um, decide to take the medication. Okay. So you mentioned earlier about the disease centers. How prevalent are they in the areas? Are people able to get to these centers easily? Are there some times where they're pretty far from where the patients are? How is that? Actually, it's it's a combination of both. So a lot of the centers, you know, are concentrated are in the the urban areas in the major cities across the country. So when I worked in Philadelphia, you know, there's the Children's Hospital, there's the Marion Anderson Sickle Cell Center. But for someone who lives outside, maybe in Scranton or, you know, in some of the outer areas of the the region, they may have to travel, you know, an hour or an hour and a half to get to a center, a place that really knows sickle cell very well. And so sometimes if they go to the local hospitals, they may be mistreated. They may not be given the proper doses of pain medicine to get their sickle cell under control. And, um, and sometimes that's a, resulted in some bad outcomes because the smaller hospitals may not know that patient very well, may not see a lot of people with sickle cell. And um, to get to a a bigger academic center or center, they may have to travel long distances to get there. I know that this is Sickle Cell Awareness Month. So is that one of the things that you concentrate on? Because I would imagine if the doctors and the hospitals or the places that receive emergency care that people have to go to for emergency care, if they're not equipped to handle the cases, then like you said, we'll have some bad outcomes. Is there a push to try to educate the masses a little bit more in the healthcare realm about the disease? Absolutely. There's so much awareness about sickle cell and training that is going on. And I'm very excited about the partnership that I have John Hopkins and this uh, program called Synergy, which they are actually training advanced practice nurses, hematologists, and other providers to be able to take care of patients in their local communities. That's just one program that's very exciting that I've been a part of. But I think so think that the most one of the pressing issues for uh, the sickle cell community is to make sure that patients have access to specialty care okay. where they are. Right. Okay. 
and their community. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So what kinds of things are happening? I, I hear sometimes about money drives. What kind of things are happening to put those ideas into motion? And what can people do to help? Um, well, I'm, our, our, our center is a member, a chapter of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, but there's other organizations and many across the country. But I think one of the biggest pushes is public policy to make sure that when those resources are allocated from the Department of Health and Social Services to the NIH, that there is a appropriate and equitable amount of money that's allocated for sickle cell disease research and also um, allocation of resources to support centers, to support healthcare providers who are taking care of patients in their local communities. You know, the Orphan Drug Disease Act has been very instrumental in helping the private sector and the biotech and the biopharmaceutical companies to be able to get more um, access to capital to do research in the very early phases for rare dis blood disorders like sickle cell. So we wanna make sure that that money still continues to get allocated, but also for those who are providing care that we get reimbursed appropriately <laughs> and fair adequately for the care that we're providing for our uh, patients. So I would say that there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I would say it should start in Washington, D.C. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Where absolutely. you live. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So hopefully, you know, those people on Capitol Hill listen because it seems like there's a trend that um, diseases that affect black and brown people more unfortunately mm -hmm. seem to get less money, less, like you said, allocation for those services and resources for us to even be able to do the research and, you know, find different treatments and things like that to make the situation better for the people who suffer from them. And mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure what, in what needs to happen to change that. But I think, you know, gathering us together and pushing and making sure that people understand that this is something that is very important will help us, you know, get to our goal on that. Yes, most definitely. I've heard some people have drives for um, bone marrow. What mm -hmm. does that do? And why would someone use bone marrow to treat sickle cell? Because uh, when, well, the best type of match for someone to get a transplant is actually from a uh, a sibling uh, that is a four out of five or a five out of five match, a full sibling. But bone marrow drives are also very instrumental for those who don't have a, a match, um, a full sibling that could potentially be a match um, where they would go into a registry. So those millions of people around the world that um, donate their bone marrow, it goes in a registry. So that may provide uh, an opportunity for someone who wants a bone marrow transplant and wants to be cured of their sickle cell um, to get an unrelated donor match as well. Okay, so what you're saying is the bone marrow transplant can actually cure sickle cell? Yes, correct. Yes. Wow. Okay. I don't think I realized that there was a real cure. So is there some major cons to getting the transplant? 
Because I'm, I'm just wondering why that is not pushed more. Um, I just want to say it's probably just like um, with anything, it's a very expensive procedure to do. Um, And so, you know, especially in our community, um, if we don't have, I want to say, you know, commercial insurance, maybe uh, it's not as open as an opportunity. But I also think that, you know, as as advocates and also our patients and families that really have to make sure that they're knowledgeable and about all of the treatment options that are available. And at least if they have um, a child with sickle cell and they have full siblings, that they should be actually screened to see if they could be a donor for their brother and sis- or sister. Okay. Wow. So what happens to the sibling? Is there a high risk to the sibling who is getting the the bone marrow taken? Um, I I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that area, but they have to harvest the marrow. Um, Either they go into the sternum or in the back of the sacroiliac area. You know, they would have to go under general anesthesia. There's probably a risk that they could have like a bleed. But um, from, you know, a patient that I had that actually went through a transplant and his sister was her his donor. Um, one of the things she said, it was just, she was just very sore after and going through the procedure of harvesting her stem cells to use for her brother's transplant. So I would say that, you know, it's just a fear in itself of the, in the process of going through it, making sure that the families understand the risks that are involved, but also the opportunity that they could be cured of their sickle cell. And then um, they may need to take medications after the transplant to prevent um, their body from rejecting the donor's um, marrow. So there's a lot of different processes with that. I wouldn't say that I'm the expert in that, but there are many transplant centers that, you know, people with sickle cell can be connected to, to really make sure that they get the the accurate information. And if they're eligible um, for a transplant, that they could go forward with it if they choose to. Okay. Well, at least that's great to have an option. I hate that it's so expensive. That pretty much knocks out a lot of the people who would potentially be eligible. Right. And even just the fact of just finding out if their sibling is a match, you know, you have to fight with the insurance companies to get that that procedure approved. So those are some of the barriers that even as healthcare providers face just to see if there's a match for their. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yes. It's Healthcare. So yes. It's so it's so disheartening because this could potentially be life and death. Right, exactly. And it's just like even with, you know, those who have diabetes. I mean, think about the cost of insulin, you know. Yes. They can't even afford to get their medications because the cost of insulin is so high right now. And so they have to make a decision about whether they want to keep the lights on or, you know, or right. put food on their right. table or take their yeah. medication. Yeah, it's oh my god, America. Yeah. <laughs> so, as far as resources for people who would like more information or to learn more about sickle cell? Do you have any places that you would recommend people go to? Yes, um, I would say we'd start with the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, and that 
www.scdaa.org. Um, but also, um, if they're interested in any of the clinical trials and that are actually recruiting um, people with sickle cell, um, they could go to clinicaltrials.gov. Excitingly, I'm actually hosting a forum tomorrow, September 18th at 7, where I actually talked to a young lady who was cured of her sickle cell through a new uh, approach called gene editing therapy. So this was a young lady in her 20s that went through a gene therapy trial um, in which they modified her red, her sickle cells, repaired them, and uh, through a process uh, gave them back to her once they were paired. So now her bone marrow is not making sickle cells anymore. I'm really excited to talk to her um, and to learn more about this process and this trial as well. Wow, that sounds really exciting. So it's a trial. It's not released for everyone yet. Exactly. It's a, what you call phase one, which there's, you know, a small amount of participants where they're really looking at whether the uh, approach is safe and efficacious. Wow. So that was a really big win on, on just phase one. Exactly. Oh, really promising. Okay. It is. For people who want to get treatment and they're in the Delaware area, where could we find you at? So I'm actually located in Wilmington, Delaware, and um, I have my offices at 213 Green Hill Avenue, and that's in Wilmington, Delaware, 19805. But they can also email me at contact at tovacommunityhealth.org. And what's such a one of the positive things I would say about COVID is that we've been able to um, ch change a platform in which in a way in which we provide care. So we have telemedicine visits, but I can also do telehealth consults. So even though those who may are interested in even, you know, coming to me or even just getting a consult about their care, we could do that virtually, even if they're not in Delaware. Oh, awesome. That is really great news. So is there anything else that you wanted to share? I would say that, I mean, I would just let the viewing, your viewing audience know that the future of sickle cell, I think, looks very bright overall. I mean, I haven't seen a time in my career where I've seen so much awareness about sickle cell and that there's less stigma for those living with sickle cell in, in the community and healthcare. Um, there's more people that are aware of the suffering and the complications and this their journey. Um, and so I'm really happy about that. I'm happy that I have more than one drug that I can use to treat patients and also prevent complications. I, you know, I'm very grateful to report that I, I just had one patient that passed away last year who was 78. Wow. So we have those who are living longer, they're growing, aging gracefully, they're aging with dignity. And most of all, I, I let them know that they can be healthy with a chronic condition. I think that's a game changer. Absolutely, because I definitely read about the uh, mortality rates and how people die younger. Mm -hmm. and so 78 does sound like a very old age compared to some of the numbers that I was seeing in past data. Right. And so that's not the case anymore. And uh, my oldest 
patient now is 70. So yes, we, we definitely have, can, I definitely can say that people with sickle cell can live long lives as well as anyone else. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Nina. Yes. And for, I really hope that um, your audience and maybe could come on to the virtual forum. They can register at www.tobacommunityhealth.org slash events. But if they're not able to attend, you can come back to our website and we'll be able to link that forum to our site and they can go there to view it at a later date. I'm just excited to hear from this young sickle cell warrior, her experience with going through a gene therapy trial and where she is today, not having sickle cell anymore. All right. We're not making sickle cells. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on this show. Well, thank you for having me. And there you have it. For the life of me, I don't understand why sickle cell anemia is not talked about more often, especially given its prevalence in the black community. To recap, you can find Dr. Nita at tovacommunityhealth.org. The event she has mentioned has passed, but I linked the video to her Facebook page in the show notes. She's also on Instagram at Tova Community Health. For the Yo This Can Be Life podcast, our Instagram and Facebook is at Yo This Can Be Life. We also have a Twitter page. Of course, we're available for your listening pleasure on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Go ahead and subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or sharing your favorite episode on social media. Thank you all for your support. Until next time.